Well, welcome to City Life. Uh, it's good to see you tonight. My name is Pastor Justin. I'm the pastor here at our Suffolk campus. We're in a series called Myth Busting. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Galatians because there's actually three different passages we'll be within Galatians tonight. But uh, I just want to emphasize for the third time tonight, next week, Newport News, not here. You show up here, we're not going to be here. God bless you, right? Newport News Campus is about 20 minutes from here. You can make it for the end of worship set if you, uh, if you end up here first. But just word of advice, it's our anniversary service. It's our third anniversary here in Suffolk, but it's our 13th anniversary in Newport News. Baker's Dozen, right? Those are the analogies you think of when you're hungry because you're fasting, right? But 13 years that City Life has, has been ministering on the peninsula here on our side of the water. So we're celebrating as two campuses next week. So I don't want us to think, oh, then I, that's one service I'll write off. No, it's, it's an opportunity for us to rally together. For them, it's inspiring to see the campus they planted. For us, it's inspiring. It's inspiring for me to just go see all those people I left three years ago and worship with them again. So let's Make sure, put a reminder in your phone, whatever you need to not show up here, but show up in Newport News. But I also wanted to let you know, in Newport News last week, uh, maybe you remember, maybe you're, you're here for the first time tonight, but we did a Christmas missions offering. And that money was going to go towards Cherished Ministries, which is a ministry uh, right here in our area, in our region, that does mission work to strip clubs, local strip clubs. They go out and they minister to women there, help them transition out of that lifestyle. And uh, we were able to cut a check for $5,000 and hand that to Sharon Thomas, who attends the Newport News campus last week. So she was sending out emails to each pastor thanking us. But really, I wanted, as your pastor, to thank you for your generosity because it's your giving and generosity that makes that possible. And then lastly, one more thing, that whole video for Faith Promise, let me think of Faith Promise, what, what are we talking about, what are we talking about? You're going to get one of these cards, if you didn't already get it, you'll get it on your way out, and it, it really says missions giving on top, because we take up a missions offering in February, and everybody that calls City Life Home should fill out one of these, because the monthly commitment, what that is, we take that number, and that's what we budget for in terms of the missions work that we're funding, the missionaries we're supporting around the globe. So pray about that, but then also pray about Faith Promise. What's Faith Promise? Again, that whole CAM video was about Faith Promise. It's praying in faith for God to move financially above and beyond what, what would be normal. Right? He, for them, it was that medical bill. And maybe you're thinking, what is this? God is a genie, right? Get, with, get rich quick. No, that Faith promise is given towards missions. That's how we build latrines in the village of Laguasara. That's how we uh, are able to fund different ministries that we pour into. So that's not, hey, I'm going to pray God blesses me and then pocket it. No, it's, it's giving to the missions work that we as a church are able to support all over the world. We got missionaries we support in Turkey. We got missionaries we support in China. And then there's trips we go on to Haiti. The, the DR trip this, this year is going to be in June. So all of these things, they happen because of our faithful giving through these. So if you get one on the way out, pray about it. Each one for each person in this church is going to look different, but each one of us should fill one out. So I would just encourage you in that. But we are in this series, Myth Busting, undoing the headaches and the heartaches inflicted by half-truths. And if this series had a mascot, as we talked about last week, it would be the Bereans in Acts 17. Scripture describes them right, as open-minded. And then in the same breath, as Paul and Silas have taught them, it says they take what they received open-minded and then held it up to Scripture and fact-checked it to make sure it was true. Now, again, for us, as we talked last week, that might seem counterintuitive. That doesn't seem open-minded to take everything Paul and Silas said and basically say, hey, prove it. Is it really true? 
But it teaches us something about questioning that I think it's important for us to recognize. That sometimes questioning is not due to a lack of faith. Sometimes questioning is due to a love for truth. Because scripture says that God's truth sets us free. But on the the other side of that coin, half truths can harm us. Distortions can derail us. We talked about last week how Eve should have been asking some questions at the tree. Adam should have been speaking up, asking some questions at the tree in the garden when the enemy was giving them half-truths. It's what derailed them. It's why Paul says in Corinthians, as we looked at last week, he said to the church in Corinth, he would say to us tonight, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Why would he fear this? As he says in verse 4, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. What he would have no doubt encouraged the Corinthians to do is what he told the Thessalonians to do. Test everything. Hold on to what's good. Get rid of any half-truths. Get rid of what's evil. You know, the verse that inspired this series, though, it's one I read last fall in Galatians 5.9 as I was reading Scripture in the Amplified Version, where it says, a little leaven A slight inclination to error leavens the whole batch. It perverts the concept of faith and misleads the church. And the question we're asking ourselves in light of this verse and in light of the introduction last week is how many of my missteps in life are because I'm being misled by misconceptions? How many of my headaches in life are because I'm operating based on half-truths? And I would ask tonight, how many of... How many heartaches are we dishing out because we tell these half-truths to others? The one tonight we're looking at does just that. But you know, I once heard it said, it was in a commentary, that parts and parcels of truth are the most envenomed shafts which fly from the bow of Satan. Now that quote sounds cool, but it's basically saying what we said last week, that half-truths are the enemy's native tongue. It's like the Trojan horse that he slips us because it's based on God's word. It's half-truth, so we let it in, but then it can wreck our lives. The commentary was speaking to scripture. It was speaking to God's word, but the reason I saw this, this quote is because I posted it with, with an MLK quote last year, and it came up on my time hop. And because we so often with MLK, we'll take part and parcel of his message, and we'll hold it up, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's powerful quotes that that man said. But my point is this. You'll probably hear this weekend I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But most of us probably aren't going to hear the entire I have a dream speech. Or we might see somebody post the quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, but we're probably not going to read the letter from a Birmingham jail in its entirety, although I would encourage you to do just that this MLK weekend. But we live in a culture that through taking part and parcel of his message, So often in our culture, we try to divorce him from his Christian beliefs. And it's important to remember that before MLK was anything else, he was a minister in a Baptist church. He was a a pastor, and he once said himself that I didn't get my inspiration from Karl Marx. I got it from a man named Jesus, a Galilean saint who said he was anointed to heal the brokenhearted. See, MLK knew that ultimately Jesus is the answer. That we're never going to get horizontal reconciliation right until we get vertical reconciliation right with God. Our problem is not ultimately a man and man problem. It's a man to God problem. That without Jesus Christ, there's enmity between us and God. Jesus is the answer because Jesus opens the door to reconciliation with God so we can then have horizontal reconciliation with one another. But you know, as quickly as, as many in the church would say amen to all of that, 
The other side of the coin is that many that would say amen to that try to distance him and divorce him from so much he had to say about race, social justice, and the lack that was coming from the white church in that time. Those are passages in the letter to the Birmingham jail that you don't see quoted very often. <laughs> Why are we guilty of this? For the same reason that many of us kind of jumped when I said racism in church. Like, can we go there? Should we go there? Are we allowed to go there? We don't like to go there. It's why many would say emphatically, well, social justice, it's, it's a distraction from the gospel. Maybe you've heard somebody say that before. Maybe you never have, and you're thinking he made that up. Well, there was a document that 4,400 religious leaders signed last year that basically said just that. Social justice is a distraction from the gospel. But again, we talked last week. When you hear something that sounds correct, but you're, you think it might be a myth, what do you do? Hold it up to Scripture and all of Scripture's content and all of Scripture's context. And then secondly, hold it up to life. How does this play out? Right? And what's discouraging to me is, is you read Scripture, it doesn't hold that up. It's a prime example to me of reading verses but not reading your Bible. You can't read through the Old Testament prophets and not go through a page where it doesn't talk about God's heart for justice, not just for the individual, but for nations. Right? You can't get through James in the New Testament without it derailing that entire stance. Faith without works is dead, and so much of the work of faith in James is, is due to social issues. And then secondly, life doesn't hold this up. I don't think most people that say social justice is a distraction from the gospel would deny the gospel's implications to social issues in practice. What do I mean? I think there's a lot of people that would say this in regards to social justice, but when it comes to other issues, like the implications of systemic issues with euthanasia or abortion or orphans and adoption is the answer, we don't pause as quickly with those issues. So what biblical umbrella do we fight for this under, these, these different issues? And it's simply the dignity of human life. The dignity of human life. We see this from the first page of the Bible. I don't know how many of you are uh, beginning Bible reading plans. Most of us read the beginning of Genesis at the beginning of January because it's a, how so many of them start. So many of us probably read the creation narrative where it says God created plants according to their kind. Sea creatures according to their kind. Land animals according to their kind. According to their kind is a common refrain until he creates man and woman. And then it says in scripture that he created them in the, his image, the image of God. You were made in the image of God. I was made in the image of God. And in that is inherent priceless value from the womb to the tomb. There's dignity, sanctity inherent in every human life, regardless of class, color, or creed. So then why the disdain for the phrase social justice. I think it's because when we use the term social justice in our culture, it's speaking to race. Not the womb to the tomb, but black and white. And there's another quote from MLK you'll probably hear this weekend. It's from the I Have a Dream speech where he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, he said this on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in front of like a quarter million people. So he certainly meant it. Right? And taking on face value without the context and content of all that MLK said and wrote, people have time and time again inferred that he had a dream that society wouldn't see color, that society would be colorblind. And at first, this notion seems good on the surface. 
Sounds good and catchy, and it's commonly upheld as a goal or an ideal that we should be colorblind. When I was a kid, the Christian bookstore sold shirts that says, love doesn't see color. Maybe you've heard people say, I, I'm, I can't be racist because my parents raised me not to see color. I'm colorblind. You know, if racial distinctions cause racism, getting rid of them seems like the appropriate solution on the surface. Especially if we want to love like God does. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the verse we started with in Galatians 5, the verses I want to look at tonight, they're all in Galatians. They all are our neighbor to the verse we started with. And one of them is in Galatians chapter 3. It's verses 26 through 28. If you want to turn there, we'll be there for a good bit. I'll let you turn there while I wet my whistle. Paul says, you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those are beautiful words. The verbiage there is beautiful. Children of God, unity, two made one in Christ Jesus. But if we aren't careful, it sure sounds like we're called to let go of distinctives. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. But we should ask the question, what is Paul seeking to eliminate with this verse and these words? And the elimination is not to eliminate seeing ethnicity or race or color. How can I say that? Again, hold up these quotes, hold up these truths in light of the context of Scripture. Hold it up in light of the context of what Paul wrote himself, because he says in Romans 9, that he would rather be cut off from Christ than to see my people, those of my own race, without Christ. He deeply identified with his Jewish ethnicity. We see it again and again through the letters he wrote and the scripture he wrote. The elimination here in Galatians 3, it's not seeing race or eliminate or ignoring our differences. The elimination that Paul wants to have here is hierarchy. What we build in society, the, the hierarchies we adapt based on these differences. We see so many us and them lines in the sands in, in our culture, in all kinds of issues, right? And these kind of create hierarchies. In psychological terms, we're hardwired to make dichotomies. Us, the in-group, them, the out-group. And I'm talking about trivial stuff like Dunkin' Donuts coffee versus Starbucks coffee, right? We'll beef about that on Facebook in a, in a friendly way most of the time, right? Cat people, dog people, Marvel, DC, uh, when I was a kid, Nintendo or Sega Genesis, right? Red Sox, Yankees, Redskins, Cowboys, we create these dichotomies. We're the good guys, you're the bad guys in most cases. And in, most, in a lot of cases, it's harmless, right? I didn't have serious beef with my friends because they liked Sega Genesis more than I liked Nintendo, but that's the way it was. We're created, hardwired it seems. It seems like we're created to make dichotomies. And dichotomies again and again, they become hierarchies. Because so often we elevate us and look down on them because they think differently, behave differently, parent differently, vote differently, all kinds of differences. And in terms of race and color, look different. And no matter how many lines in the sand get added in our culture, we should remember God's grace is for every race, every socioeconomic status, every political affiliation, every person he created. And sometimes hierarchy in our society and in societies in history. It goes beyond just looking down the nose at somebody. 
in our own countries, not distant history, it's included systemic issues to outright slavery. How does that happen? Because man's broken by sin. Hurt people hurt people. Broken people build systems, and guess what? They're not perfect because they're built by broken people. We're wired for dichotomies that cause hierarchies and cause ugly division. We have to understand that to not talk about issues like race or to talk about them, actually, it's, it's not divisive. So often if I bring it up from the pulpit, somebody inevitably is like, why, would, why talk about that? It's so divisive. But really, it's taking the divide that's already present and bringing it to the light so that Jesus Christ can bring healing. So that the reconciliation we have with God can affect the reconciliation we need with those around us. But again, you'll hear some people say, just preach the gospel that makes us one in Christ. Makes us all children of God. After all, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, black or white. Stop pointing to race and ethnicity. But again, we should ask the question, how does this hold up with the rest of Scripture? How does this hold up with the rest of the verse? <laughs> because you look at male and female, for instance. Genders are unique and they're beautiful. And God created them that way. And when they come together in marriage with their own unique strengths, God is glorified through it. Right? That's why marriage is so beautiful. The basis for unity in marriage is not sameness. Right? Steph and I are very different. Sometimes dangerously so. Sometimes beautifully so. Right? But that's what makes harmony and unity in marriage between a man and a woman so beautiful. And it's why we so often see the church go up to bat for the biblical definition of marriage. But why do we not use this verse to support differences in race? Why do we do the opposite with this same verse? Because I've heard people say again, right, I don't see black or white. There's no longer black or white. We're all kids. We're covered by the blood. I just see the blood, right? I see red. You can get real churchy with this, this cliche. But Paul writes in Scripture, in the book of Corinthians to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. You see, when we look at the greater context of Scripture and Paul's writing here in Corinthians, it makes it plain that unity isn't uniformity. But the unity God desires it replaces a hierarchy based on differences, not by eliminating the differences, but by replacing hierarchy with harmony that's strengthened by differences. Now, that's a mouthful, and my former English professors probably would read that sentence all up, so let's read it again. It's the unity God desires replaces a hierarchy based on differences, not by eliminating the differences, but by replacing hierarchy with harmony that's, in fact, strengthened by differences. God's redemptive plan is to redeem mankind, redeem each man and woman. And the plan for each man and woman is to be rewired from this impulse for hierarchy to a love for harmony. One in Christ, in his bride, the church. We as God's people are called to replace hierarchy based on differences with a harmony that's strengthened by our differences. Harmony by definition demands differences. Like when, when, when a few people, maybe two, maybe even three of us are up here singing, and you're back there, you're maybe not musically inclined, but you just know something is, is amazing right now. The vocals are, they're hitting. And that's because none of them are singing the same thing. Right, none of them. What makes it so beautiful, these harmonies so beautiful, is each one of them is singing a different thing. Sure, the words are the same. And I would say that just as we never compromise the word of God and its truth on the altar of unity, 
but the expression and notes of the words is different. That's how you create harmonies. Amanda is great at slaying some harmonies. Dom knows. He's nodding his head. Thank you, Dom, for leading worship as well. But the expression and notes are different. That's how harmonies are created. Uniformity, each person singing the exact same thing would actually bring the quality of worship down. You'd be like, it's flat tonight. I don't know why. It's because everybody's singing the exact same note. We live in a culture where uniformity, though, it's easy. It's effortless. Right? In most arenas like social media, we get to form groups of people that think like us, respond like us, share the same perspectives as us. In most arenas of life, we get to form groups of people that agree with us on pretty much anything. It's like we seek out mirrors and reflections like narcissists reincarnated. But often, we might come to church with the same inclination, to worship with people that look like us, have the same opinion about worship songs, should sound like. We got people in here that love hymns that got so excited when Dom started singing a hymn tonight. But they come here and worship because they love Jesus, right? We give up some of our preferences so that we can have unity. Although, let me tell you, I love hymns too. Anybody that's leading, feel free to throw them in. <laughs> but this is the idea. And I'll tell you, if you seek uniformity in the church, that people would think like you, have the same preferences, I would tell you you're probably worshiping yourself as much as you're worshiping God in that moment. The church, as Paul wrote about it, many backgrounds coming together as one should be a place where our community is dropped in our lap. We're forced to have relationships that step outside our echo chamber. And some of our perspectives, we're going to say, huh, I've got to rethink that because that person has a different perspective. Sometimes, like I'll talk about later, you don't need a new perspective. You just need to broaden your lens and your scope by different people's experiences of God's truth. Again, this isn't to say we sacrifice God's truth on the altar of unity, but the expression, the church, is meant to have different voices and different harmonies. But statistics show that while America becomes more and more culturally diverse, the church in America continues to become more and more homogenous. We're just less and less diverse in the church. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at the same time the church in America is largely losing its witness because our voice lacks harmony and our worship is no longer the light it was intended to be. See, MLK didn't have a dream where all the people were the same. He had a dream where all the people were equal. He didn't have a dream where all the people would no longer see color. He just had a dream that his children would no longer be judged by color. From public to personal perception, from conversation to the courthouse. Judging well, it's a justice. Judging incorrectly based on bias or prejudice, that's injustice. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that you cannot mock the justice of God. Injustice in any and all society, it, it does just that. Hence, the value of social justice. But I think the word is so triggering, social justice, because it's been politicized. Often we hear social justice and we think them over there, like that's their term, it's not my term. But we need to reclaim the word justice as something that's throughout the Bible, Justice is something that God is passionate about, has a heart for, and reclaim it. MLK said in his I Have a Dream speech that we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. These aren't the words of a, a pastor who had become distracted by social justice. This is a pastor quoting the Bible, Scripture, the prophet Amos, who said, Let justice roll down like water, righteousness like a mighty stream. This is the cry of God through his prophet Amos in Scripture. He has a heart. For justice, his heart is broken by injustice. And when the prophet Amos, inspired by God, asked the question, what, what does God require of you? Basically condensing all the commands into three things, what does he say? 
The first at the top of the list, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Here's the thing. Here's the dig. Colorblindness makes it hard to do justice. Because in a lot of cases, colorblindness will make us blind to injustices. Colorblindness can make us justice blind. From, from redlining in real estate to school segregation to gentrification to the racial wealth gap, if you're blind to color, you'll be blind to the disparities because you don't see the, the differences. You don't see the Y and X axis. You can't fully embrace God's heart for justice until you see color. Colorblindness enables us to become numb to racism because it doesn't affect us. For people that look like me, right? In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, you can turn there if you want. We see Peter, in a lot of ways, had been just numbed. And Paul kind of, you know, Hebrews talks about provoking one another to good deeds. That's kind of what Paul does here. It says in Galatians 2, I'm going to have verse 14 up on the screen. But in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It says Paul calls Peter to account. And he says in verse 14, you're not living in line with the gospel. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. How could Paul accuse Peter of such a thing? Peter, this apostle who was a leader in the church, he says, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Again, we see Paul makes it clear here that, that Jews and Gentiles don't become one by losing their identity. But we also see the same impulses that derailed Peter can cause us to subscribe to the myth we're talking about tonight, being colorblind. Because Peter walked in the privileges that came with being a Jew. Now, if I just say the word privilege, the hair on the back of our neck stands up, right? Because, again, that's a word that's triggering. Because in our culture, it's synonymous with white privilege. But let me just de defuse that. Let me uh, uh, push that to the background a bit. There's no Anglo-Saxon men in this, this passage we're looking at. All these guys, all these brothers in this passage are packing melanin, right? So there's no white people. There's no white privilege in this passage, but there are men that were walking in privilege and men that were walking without it. So I'll just derail that from the jump. But when you talk about systemic and structural sin, few sins are more systemic in nature than pride. Looking to our own interests first before we ever look to the interests of somebody else, if we ever look to the interests of others. It's how throughout history we see predominant culture privilege rise again and again. In every culture throughout history, including ours, right now in America, there's a dominant culture. It's one that experiences representation. Right? See people like them from, from the courthouse to the stage, from commercials to our heroes and our superheroes. With predominant culture comes perks, a.k.a. predominant culture privilege. This was all taking place in Roman culture. Matter of fact, when you see an Acts Paul's about to be flogged for the work he's doing for the church. They're about to, Roman soldiers are about to beat him to a pulp. And he says, uh, pause. Basically he says, put some respect on my name, as the youth would say today. He says, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen by birth. He's like, I know there's privileges that come with this. And they couldn't, they couldn't tell him to go away quick enough and forget that it ever happened. Because that was a, a privilege he walked in as a Roman citizen born in Rome. 
But for Peter, there were perks that didn't relate to being a, a Roman in the Roman Empire. But when you looked at Christianity that, at that time, that up to that point was almost saturated with Jewish culture and only had just begun to reach the Gentiles, there was perks he, he experienced. Again, for centuries, Jews were represented by Jewish priests. There, were, there was a wall in the temple that basically said, hey, if you're a Gentile and you go past here, we're going to kill you. When the scripture talks about walls of hostility, that was a very real thing. See, there was a privileged comfort for a Jew being in a Jewish religious realm, and there was potential uncomfortable conflict if he stood with the Gentiles. Peter, in this moment, as the Judaizers came in. You know, I talk about all this because for me, as a white man in America, the temptation to be colorblind is there because it's comfortable. Right? Because rather than deal with the problem, which is uncomfortable, I can adopt a worldview that acts like it's not there. It distances me from the unthinkable. Colorblindness, it gives comfort to the privileged, but rarely, if ever, does colorblindness benefit those that are actually being persecuted. The ability to claim colorblindness within heightened racial tension is essentially the height of privilege. It's easy to be colorblind when you're a part of the predominant culture. Like, when is the last time, if you are a Caucasian like myself, an Anglo-Saxon brother or sister like myself, you've walked in here and been like, huh, this is mostly a white congregation. Probably not often, right? Because when you're in the majority, you don't think about that. Because you're just going about your day-to-day. You don't really think about it. It doesn't arise. I visited a friend's church last week. His, his name's Chris, Pastor Chris George. He pastors a church called Fullness Church in Chesapeake. I love the guy. Uh, he's a brother in Christ. He's encouraged me so much as a pastor. He's a pastor. I love him. So I was like, let me get to his church. And so I show up. And it doesn't take me long to realize about five minutes into worship, I'm the only white person there, right? I just realized it. It's funny because coming in here, you wouldn't think of it. But when you're in a, a situation where you're the minority, all of a sudden, it, it's, it's hard to be colorblind. You see color when you're the minority. And this isn't because they weren't welcoming. Like a woman, I come in the door, she's like, you're a visitor, please fill this out, get us back to it. And then after service, she's like apologizing. She's like, I didn't know you were a pastor, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, you're doing your job. You keep that up with that kind of welcoming spirit, y'all are gonna, y'all are gonna explode. But this was with them being welcoming, loving. Try adding persecution or, or, or prejudice to the mix and think about how much being colorblind is hard when you're a minority. But when you're in the majority like me, I almost have to work to find a situation where I'm not in the majority. But for many people, we pass every day. Some of the people we worship with here, it's their everyday reality. That's the macro level of colorblindness. Societies, countries, churches, and groups. But on the micro level, person to person, let me just be honest. I cringe when I hear parents say, I'm going to raise my kid to be colorblind. I cringe. Because, again, it's the easy way out when you're surrounded by people that look like you. But I'm raising a kid. He hasn't been here in a while. I was talking to Dawn about that because just with everything that's going on with Steph. He's from India, okay, so he's packing a lot of melanin. That kid is beautiful. All right? My kid is the most gorgeous kid on the planet, and I can say that, and there's no pride involved because I had nothing to do with it because he's adopted. But uh, my son is gorgeous. Like, he's going to have problems. I want to teach him, like, not to lead the ladies on. Not, don't even smile at him, right? Like, <laughs> don't make eye contact. No, just kidding. But he's going to have questions. Like, he's Indian. Like, why aren't there superheroes that look like me? You know, where are the politicians that look like me? Where are the people that look like me in commercials and when I turn on the TV? 
Again, for a person of color in a culture where they're the minority, the push for colorblindness implies that there's something shameful about the way that God made me that we shouldn't talk about. My distinctions or my identity. See, the point, this colorblind myth is a half-truth. The full truth is something very different, but the half-truth can hurt us, especially when we say it to people or imply that I'm colorblind, right? This is what that means to people that hear it. But what's the full truth? And I would encourage you, if you're a parent, raise your kid to be color wise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, he says, I became all things to all people. We probably might be familiar with that phrase if you've read through your Bible before. But in verse 19, he says, I, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Then he says in verse 20, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. What does that mean? Well, that's a fancy way of saying that in an act of wisdom, Paul became like those, unlike the Jews, to reach them and to love them. Get this. He didn't just see and discern ethnic and cultural differences. He was wise enough to let those differences inform his ministry, inform his interactions. He noted things like color, culture, and creed. And this isn't racism. This was the opposite. This was empathy. This was love, right? This was the love of God. He loved them so much that he adapted to them. But on the other hand, being colorblind cripples our ability to love our neighbor that's not like us. Because I don't know if we can love somebody in the biblical sense of the word until we've truly heard them out. Their life experiences, their perspectives. I love the message version of 1 Corinthians 9.20 where Paul says in the message version, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings on Christ. But I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. You know, one of the symptoms of our sin nature is this subconscious way that we think our experience is the valid one. The one upon which all judgment should be made. But being color wise recognizes that while I, don't, I may not need to shift my perspective, I might not even have the right perspective. But we're all born with this limited lens. And when we interact with people that love Jesus, that came from different backgrounds, come from different cultures, different ethnicities, that widens that lens. It broadens that lens. And it enriches your life, period. So raise your kids to be color wise, right? Discerning, respecting, responding. And then raise your kids to be color brave. It says in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. I want my kid to know that, that racism in any of its forms, white supremacy, whatever it is, it runs counter to the gospel and it's a lie from the pit of hell, right? That, I just want them to know that racism is evil, so don't sweep it under the rug. If it's evil, expose it, right? Work against it. Being colorblind so often is our way of dodging this call to expose racism or champion justice. We need to be color brave. If God has spoken to it in scripture, let's not be silent about it as we follow him. Raise your kids to be color smart. Raise them to be color brave. Raise them to recognize diversity. Raise them to celebrate good God, God's good design and realize this is something to be proactively celebrated, not fearfully ignored. And you know, if you do this, you'll be equipping them for God's mission for their life, one of the deep purposes for his life. Because if you could boil down God's mission in Scripture to two words, one way you could define it is to fill heaven. God wants to fill heaven. He wants to see all men saved and come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in this vision we get of heaven in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the the words of, uh, of John, he says, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, 
from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne. And as we get back into worship, if I got to have the worship team come up, I actually want to show a video while they come up. It's of a gentleman. He'd been colorblind, I think, for 60-plus years is how old he was. And apparently they have technology now, glasses that help you see color. So for his birthday, he comes outside, like this is about two minutes into the video. He must have been watching a Steelers game or something because he's this big, tough, burly guy, and his, his family gives him a birthday present, and it was these glasses. Put them on. Put them on. Put them on. Put sunglasses. Let us look. Oh, that's weird. Look at the balloons. <laughs> Can you see with our eyes now, baby? Can you, what colors you see? Those. You see colors now? Oh, <laughs> 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 now you have rose colored glasses, baby. <laughs> now you see with our eyes. You like the balloons? <laughs> and it goes on, and it goes on. And the first time I watched that, I, I teared up. Because here's this man seeing color for the first time, and he, he's, he just starts weeping. Especially as you continue watching. Just starts weeping. And I believe heaven, when I get there, I'm a sap. Like, again, the first time I saw that video, I, I, I teared up. I believe when I get to heaven, I'm going to tear up. It's going to be so beautiful, I'm going to cry. And, and what struck John when he in this life saw a vision of heaven was, again, what we see in Revelation 7, 9. It paints this picture of heaven, the final result of God's redemptive plan. His redemptive work on earth, and it's a place that's diverse. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Come on, may the church on earth be a reflection of that. May we realize that we're going to worship with people here, and we're going to worship with people in heaven that voted differently than us, right? We demonize them. It's us versus them, but we're going to worship with them in heaven. We're going to worship here, and we're going to worship in heaven, people with different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different life experiences. So, therefore, different perspectives that enriches us. It gets us ready for heaven. Being colorblind ultimately can make you heaven blind because when we get to heaven, that's going to be part of the beauty. That's why we really can look down our nose at nobody. We can't operate in hierarchies because when I'm looking up to God in worship, I can't simultaneously look down at somebody else. When I'm looking up to God for grace and salvation I need daily, I can't look down on somebody else in the same moment. You know who wasn't colorblind? John. Because colorblind, again, would have made him heaven blind. Blind to one of the most beautiful aspects that he first noted in heaven. Why would we choose to miss out on the beauty that struck him so powerfully when he was before God's throne? So what are the lenses on our glasses, right? If we had some glasses that would help us see color, not be blind to it. The first is, again, be color wise. 
Replace hierarchy and the impulse for dichotomies with harmony that enhances unity. The, the other lens would be being color brave, right? Again, fighting for the justice we see in scripture in God's heart. It says in Ephesians 2, if we could stand as we're about to go into worship, it says in Ephesians 2 that God brings down the walls of hostility. He brings close those that are far. He brings unity out of division. God is still in the business of bringing unity out of division. He's still in the business of doing his best work when it seems darkness and darkest, and he's still in the business of using his bride and using his church. But our voice, if we're gonna have an impact, it needs to have harmony. And there's beauty in diversity. And we see this in Ephesians 2, and I love that in Ephesians 3, basically in his next breath in verse 10, Paul says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities, where? In the heavenly place. So we'll see the beauty of heaven one day in all of its rich diversity. But the heavenly places, they're watching us now, hoping that we'll work towards the same kingdom and redemptive plan of unity here. And my heart is that we would walk in this. God, make us color wise, make us color brave, Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, that you're the answer. You're what makes reconciliation with God possible. God, there's no, there's no improving our lives. That like Emily was exhorting after worship earlier, that we're never gonna be perfect. We're never gonna be good enough to come to you, but I thank you that we don't have to change ourselves to come to you. We come to you and we're changed. Jesus, we thank you that through the gospel, you open the door to vertical reconciliation. But I pray that we would never forget that we're called to reconcile horizontally. Matter of fact, Jesus says in moments of worship like this, there's places where you aren't reconciled. Go and be reconciled. So Jesus, I pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be in every heart. You know what, if, if you're here and you've never stepped into the door that Jesus holds open with the cross, for reconciliation with God the Father, to walk in relationship in the life he promises. And tonight, let that be the night where you step, maybe it's to the altar, maybe it's to the back in prayer where the Nawatnis can pray for you or I can pray for you or pray where you are in worship. But I pray that you will walk through that door if you never had. And for the rest of us, maybe we've, we've been vertically reconciled with God, but we know there's places in our life where we operate from this us and them perspective. God, I pray that you would continually renew our minds daily. Remind us that Jesus operated not from us versus them, but me for them. That you gave yourself on the cross so that we, your church, can operate in us for them. Wherever there's a line in the sand, you called us to cross it and bring people to you. So God, I pray that you would give us just this perspective of, of your grace, God, that wants to flow from us and out into the world. But Jesus, we thank you that you make reconciliation possible. Jesus, we love you, as we sang earlier, and we come to you again in worship and praise you. And again, if you need prayer, the Nawatnis are in the back. I'll be up here, but let's worship together.